Hi, everybody. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Forensic Anthropology Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kennyhurst. In this episode, I am joined by longtime friend and collaborator, Dr. Greg Berg, to have a chat with Dr. Richard Jantz about his paper, Amelia Earhart and the Nikumaroro Bones, a 1941 analysis versus modern quantitative techniques from volume one, number two. I don't believe that Dr. Jantz, or the doctor's Jantz for that matter, require much of an introduction, but I will say we found out some very convincing additional evidence from Richard concerning the ongoing efforts towards a positive identification of Amelia Earhart. A warning though, this one will be a little bit statistics heavy, though I feel that is necessary to have a good foundational understanding of the procedures that Richard used and how he used them to be able to critically examine his findings. As you'll soon find, it is important to provide some or any measure of certainty to support your claims. To start out, would you give us three main takeaways from this paper? Well, I think the most salient point that perhaps I didn't even make explicit is that the fate of Amelia Earhart needs to be framed in terms of scientific hypotheses that are testable. So many people have their own pet idea and it doesn't bother them that there's no evidence toward it. And a lot of people have been critical mainly on listservs press of, of my findings. That's fine, but I think they should alternative hypotheses with evidence. If So that's one thing. Another is that I think the paper shows the value of having large data sets to address questions of this nature. You know, that goes for many applications, not just this one. But I think without having a large data set or a data set at all, you really couldn't have done anything with it. And the third thing I would say is that the Amelia problem is extremely multifaceted. And I had the advantage of working with TIGER, that's the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, And it provided a lot of resources, archaeological, historical, artifactual. It shows the value of context. So this is a lot more than just bones found on an island, because there's a tremendous amount of context that uh, you have to appreciate. And it's not enough just to say, oh, the bones can't be Amelia Earhart's without dealing with all of that context as well. So I would say those are the, the three principal takeaways. That's a great jumping off point that I would like to kick right into is context. Because as talking to someone who is a, as a newbie with this, what really kind of one of the things that struck me early in the paper is not knowing a lot about the archaeological context of the remains. And I was wondering if you had any more background to that or any more information. Um, I don't think we know a lot about that because they didn't provide detailed records. But I think the impression you get is that the bones were fairly localized and the fact that they found a a good part of the skeleton suggests that and 
as far as context goes, there are two lines of, of evidence. The, the, the things that were found in 1940 when they found the bones, and that included like a, a liqueur bottle, a, a sextant box, parts of shoes. Apparently there was a woman's shoe and a man's shoe, and the, the British officer thought, well, this might be Amelia Earhart because of, of a woman's shoe. But the bones are not available anymore, nor are these artifacts. So it is interesting, though, that they made notes of the numbers on the sextant box, and Tiger was able to identify that sextant box as one made in Brooklyn. So the sextant box did not have a sextant in it, but it's really hard to imagine how that box would get there in any other way. Yeah, and I'd imagine that whoever found that box maybe have had ended up with that sextant as well. But I, that, I think that's a, a beautiful thing too, because later in the paper you talk about likelihoods, which we'll get to more, but it seems, the odds seem so staggeringly low that uh, under these conditions you would find just what a lady's shoe on that island period and a sex in box that was made in the United States period. And the potential population of people that would have those things, a woman's shoe and a sextant and would be on that island is cannot be significantly different from zero. <laughs> right. And um, Tiger has conducted, I don't know how many, but five or six different archeological expeditions to the, to the island and to the site where the skeleton was found. And some additional stuff has, has emerged. And what's really interesting is that they found freckle cream bottles. It was in fragments, but they could put it together. And it's a very close match to Dr. Barry's freckle cream, which had a mercury compound in it. It was supposed to fade freckles. And this jar had the remnants of mercury in it. And Amelia Earhart had freckles. So that's a pretty cool thing. And there was a beer bottle, returnable beer bottle, that was broken and appeared to have been used for trying to heat water. And the navigator, Noonan, was known to like beer. So let's kind of go down the road that I was thinking is the person that I would assume to be on a plane that would really want to use a sextant would be the person that was in charge of navigating. And that was Noonan, yes. That was Noonan. Mm-hmm. And so then I kind of went, started going down this road with context, which is why I was asking the question about, do we know anything of how the remains were found? It's because I, I then wonder about commingling. Fortunately, Noonan was six feet and a quarter inch. And the bone lengths... Uh, the postcranial skeleton are, are all we have, but they're internally consistent with one person. And if there were a Noonan bone in there, we, I think, could figure that out. Now, you know, I mean, conceivably, there could be an island or something like that. But since the bones are all found in one place and uh, I think I think the likelihood of commingling is, is pretty remote. I was kind of thinking about the head. 
because we can't do that with well okay you know i don't think you can get very far trying to match skulls to postcranials but we have four measurements from the skull we have length and breadth and orbit height and width and from those it classifies as female but not strongly and I guess, guess that wouldn't necessarily rule out Noonan, but it would just be weird to have an internally consistent postcranial skeleton with a head from someone else. But, you know, um, well, the only evidence we have is what the British officer wrote down at the time. Do you have a copy of his notes? Does anyone have a copy of his notes? Yeah, there are copies of his communications. Uh, they, they were telegraphing back and forth. And so the, the, all that stuff can be found on Tiger's website. And the kind of weird thing is that no one knew of the existence of any of this until... 1998, and that's when uh, Dr. Hoodless's report was found in British archives of the Western Pacific High Command. And, you know, Tiger was working on the Nakumarora hypothesis prior to the appearance of the information about the bones. So one of the Tiger people was going through archives in London and came across this. And that you can find that too. That's that's on. You can find Doctor Hoodless's report, such that it is. So yeah, there's a tremendous amount of historical information that, that you can find. And incidentally, with regard to Noonan, there's a lot of uh, post-loss transmissions. So she was broadcasting for five or six days after disappearing, and there was a. 15-year-old girl in Florida who was on her shortwave radio, and she picked up Amelia Earhart, and this person clearly says, this is Amelia Earhart, and she says, we can't hold on much longer. My navigator is seriously wounded or injured. So uh, I think from that, we might conclude that Noonan maybe never even made it out of the airplane. The theory is that, you know, she would get into the airplane at night when it was not so hot because it would probably be insufferably hot during the day. And, and so her transmissions coincide pretty much with evening and low tide. And site where she was found is about four miles from where it is thought she landed. Oh, wow. The second question, though, is what got you interested in this problem, this question? Well, it's a long story. Maybe the story itself is not so long, but it took a long time to develop. When Dr. Hoodless's report became available in 1998, at that time, Carr Burns was working with Tiger. So this, this Hoodless report had numbers in it. Carr said, okay, we need to get someone involved who can deal with numbers, even though there are that many numbers. And 
And so we did a kind of a perfunctory analysis for height and what we could say about ancestry, and we concluded that the remains were consistent with Amelia Earhart. And that, I think, was a poster at AAA that Carr put together, and then it was published in Tiger Newsletter. And then it lay dormant until 2015 when the Cross and Wright paper came out. And Cross and Wright took issue with uh, our conclusions and made the case that Dr. Hoodless was perfectly capable of figuring this out and that his conclusion that the remains were those of a male uh, ruled out Earhart. So that's kind of what got me going. So I thought, well, we can't really let this lie unchallenged. Then from 2015 until 2018 was spent kind of trying to figure out what we could really learn about Amelia Earhart, as well as figuring out why Hoodless might have misdiagnosed the remains. And, you know, there's fortunately a very rich photographic history of Amelia Earhart. And so I was scrounging photos and looking for things that might be useful. And there was kind of a preliminary thing where I told Tiger that the brachial index of the, the Kumarora bones was, was pretty high, suggesting a relatively long radius. And the forensic photographer, Jeff Glickman, got a good picture of her facing the camera, and he could reconstruct humorous length and, and radius length, but only in pixels, because there, there wasn't a scale. But from that, he figured out that Amelia Earhart did, in fact, have a relatively long forearm. And then the Rosetta Stone that kind of broke it open was the photograph of her holding an oil can. And Glickman got an oil can that was identical on eBay, and from that we got the scale. And that led us from pixels to millimeters. So once that happened, you know, I felt pretty good about going ahead with a fairly extensive analysis. And I have to say that I was kind of surprised by the fact that there is a certain amount of uniqueness in long bone lengths and proportions. And it's, it's not like DNA where you say the chances are one in six million or whatever, but under the circumstances, not too bad. That's kind of the the history of how it came about. Now that you have a scale, can you then approximate those measurements and just do like a one-to-one comparison of the bones? And then you can look at deviation from that as opposed to an average deviation from like the mean of females in the forensic data bank as another way to see like how unique is this? Well, I think that's what I did. I did not present a table showing the lengths of the Nakumarora bones directly compared to the reconstruction of Amelia Earhart's. But, you know, we'll get into this later, I guess, is that the, mal- the malnobis distance is a way of doing that. So each bone in the database was compared to the Kumarora bones along with Amelia Earhart's reconstructed measurements, and that's where all the probabilities come from. It would be wonderful if we had some photographs, but we do not seem to have those. Uh, well, 
um, whatever meager reach this podcast has, maybe someone listening will have some access to some photos. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, what, what would be wonderful is if we could find out what happened to the bones, but yeah, so far, nothing. So you started this back in 1998, then the Cross and Write paper came out. And I went back and read that paper too, and it is so rife with just logical errors, appealing to authority being their major one with Hoodless. And they are unaware of the fact that everything they said was subjective, and they are basing their conclusions off of the way they felt and not anything, one, logical, two, reasonable, or three, provable, right? And I think that's a really dangerous place for science to go into to make such definitive conclusions when you're so rife with uncertainty and bias, particularly ones that you can't see. So how do you think Cross and Wright got it so wrong? Well, yeah, I've, I've asked myself that question, and I don't really know the answer. I mean, the, the one thing, the one point they make is that Hoodless is the only person to have had the bones in front of him. And that's worth something, I agree. But, you know, they're willing to accept Hoodless's findings, arguing that he was perfectly competent to do these things. And what I argue is that forensic anthropology was an infant science at the time. And I think no one was really very good at that kind of thing. And Hoodless had no formal training, so far as we know, in assessing sex or ancestry or, or height. And, you know, I'm not arguing that Hoodless was incompetent at all, but we still make errors today. And we presumably know a lot more about what we're doing than was the case in 1940. So I kind of suspect that Cross and Wright are just of the kind of never Nakumarora hypothesis. And I don't know why that's the case, but I do know there are a fair number of people out there who do not wish it to be the case. And, you know, I don't know Cross, and I've never met Wright, but we have communicated by email and been fairly cordial, but I haven't heard from him since 2018. But uh, I have no idea why they are so willing to accept almost anything. I mean, there's a really good example in accepting her pilot's license as indicative of her physique. So, you know, her pilot's license says she was 5'8 and weighed 118 pounds. And the photographic record of her shows that she's a woman with healthy amount of body fat. She's, she's narrow-bodied, to be sure, but got some fairly heavy limb bones, as you can see in the photos, or what you might infer are heavy limb bones. And so they just accept that, and without regard to evidence to the contrary. So she clearly exaggerated her height and underestimated her weight, and that's not uncommon. And, you know, as, as my paper shows, there's a driver's license that gives her height 5'7", and that's probably correct. The driver's license would have been available to them too, but they they chose the pilot's license, yeah. And and Wright has argued that her height would have been measured in her application for a pilot's license, but you know, 
they never measure height, do they? Well, you show that there's no requirement for that. Absolutely. And so she she was probably just asked how tall she was and what she weighed, and that was that. So with this, I, you've got this one little tiny parenthetical about Hoodless's exam and, and Hoodless's stature estimation. And you also spend a little bit of time talking about cognitive bias. And in, in your paper, you say that, you know, you, you often repeat that his, his ultimate conclusion was that the remains were of a short, stocky, muscular European. Mm-hmm. The European part I agree with. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> you also spend some time talking about cognitive bias in here. And I'm just kind of wondering, do we know anything about Hoodless? Was he taller and so the remains that he were was looking at potentially become shorter just from a your own a internal <laughs> yeah your own internal cognitive bias i have not seen uh, any information about how tall hoodless was i think there are probably pictures of him in fact i know there are pictures of him standing with islanders and maybe one could kind of figure that out but i'm guessing that he was not unusually tall and the funny thing is that you know his estimate was five five and a half five feet five and a half inches which is not that much lower than the average height at the time so i'm not sure why he characterized the bones as those of a short person and you know, his estimate, of course, was based on Pearson's regressions, which in turn were based on 18th century French. So the regressions underestimate height to a considerable degree. I'm just wondering, kind of just thinking about it, though, because like, he was, as you've argued, relatively, we don't know that if he was trained, but realistically he wasn't in, you know, other than anatomy. And so when you think about just how you look at the world and your own cognitive biases, you know, were these remains, and he's used to dealing with island folks who are going to be probably smaller, shorter, stockier. Uh -huh. To layer these biases onto the remains without even knowing that he was doing that, but his conclusions kind of fit his worldview at that moment. Yeah, and I think there's other evidence that he had a cognitive bias. You know, the Americans never knew about any of this. And there was an administrator named Luke, and he seemed pretty set on not on these remains not being Amelia Earhart because of the publicity and, and things like that. And it's it's pretty likely that Hoodless was aware of Luke's hope that this was not Amelia Earhart. And when you read his report, he says, these are the remains of a male, and that's capitalized and underlined. <laughs> and uh, nothing else gets that kind of emphasis in his report. So uh, I think he basically told his audience what it wanted to hear. 
Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that this is turning into like a Hollywood style movie intrigue thing about like hidden identities and ulterior motives. <laughs> I want to move into the um, the workflow you had for estimating height and weight. And if you uh, of Amelia, Amelia, yeah, yeah, not of hoodless. We're 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 past hoodless's dimensions now. I think the the approach to the weight in particular is so interesting. Well, okay, height was done. The the measured height that we have was done by the forensic photographer and they he used the airplane in the smithsonian that's hanging from the ceiling it's her vega i think that's the one she flew across the atlantic in and there's a picture of her standing by it and so he was able to rearrange it in such a way that he he could use the airplane as a scale and his estimate of her height was five seven and a small fraction so that along with the driver's license i think makes five seven the most likely number as far as weight is concerned you know purdue university has lots of amelia material because purdue was one of her sponsors i think she was adjunct faculty and so there are there's a pair of trousers and we got the waist circumference from the trousers. And then I used the military data to get a regression uh, to estimate weight from height and waist circumference. That's how I got that. I love, I love that so much. I think it's a, such an interesting approach to problem solving. And I wonder too, there has been a lot of attempts to estimate body mass using skeletal measurements. And it's, it's okay. Do you think there's any room for this type of research to progress or ways that we can fold in other types of information to maybe be better about our body mass estimates if we're going to try to employ them or should we employ them? To estimate weight? Yeah. From skeletal remains? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Ruff and Auerbach and Ruff have developed uh, what they think is a reliable way to do that for archaeological remains. And they use femur head and also body breaths. And they feel that you can do a pretty good job on pre-modern populations. But modern populations, especially Americans, pose the problem that there's a lot of excess body fat in many people. And, you know, we've had a couple of dissertations from UT. Uh, Megan Moore did one, and then Nicole Reeves did one uh, that attempted to address that problem. And Megan's work showed that there were macroscopic and bone density indicators. So, Heel spurs were more common in obese people, and this comes from, from our donated collection, and, you know, we get plenty of obese people. And uh, bone density seems to be increased, and I think Nicole found some of the same things. And both of them concluded that they could tell if someone was obese or not. Now, I don't think they had it down to actual weight. Yeah, just that at one point in their life, somebody had... Uh reached obesity for a time to make these changes, these structural changes of the bone happen. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe the the rough and Auerbach and rough procedures could be used to estimate kind of the lean body weight. And then the obesity is, is another question. So I don't know if you can tell a 300-pounder from a 400-pounder. You know, I suppose context is pretty important there, too. So maybe forensic cases are not as likely to be obese. And I guess we we would have some data on that, but I haven't looked at it. A follow-up to that, too, is I'm thinking about the use of your use of photographs in this, too, and the analysis and the workflow you're able to do it. Say you had a forensic case assigned to you, and you did all of your analysis. You generate your biological profile. You give it to your cops, ME, whatever, and they're like, oh, okay, great. We think it's this guy. We have this picture. And imagine it's a perfect picture of him standing straight on looking at the camera. And they're like, would this fit the remains? You'd be like, well, yeah, the overall profile is. But do you think that it would be worthwhile, if possible, to kind of do the same way you estimated Amelia Earhart's height and weight from that photograph and look at it, do a comparison to the skeletal remains? Yeah, I, I think that you could generalize the Amelia situation thought about it but i never thought there'd really be much use for it uh, i don't i don't know i think that there could be a lot of use for it particularly i think with namus too i think there could be something uh, very useful in that and the way i want to talk about this later too because it was your second main point was um, the need for large data but you can compare those proportions right to everyone that's known in the forensic data bank too to get a uniqueness of this individual compared to a population, right? Right. So then if you have your skeletal remains and you have this photograph that is good enough quality that you can do some sort of rough estimates on it, you can look at their correlation, how unique that is within this larger data set too. Right. That would be a way of making positive identification or at least bringing evidence. Yeah, it would bring, it would bring, it's essentially just do it's using the way dna describes their evidence with anthropological data because you could arrive at a likelihood with that process at the end so one of the things that is always amazing to me and i still i still refer to this to this day is called the jance sphere of influence <laughs> this, this, i think it's called the jance radius isn't it well i don't know it, it's a lot of different names for and it. is it wouldn't it be the jance's radii i <laughs> If we're pluralizing. <laughs> so it's this, uh, for folks that don't know what uh, we're referring to here, it's this, uh, it's this space that transcends time and learning and typically statistics that if you're within somewhere between six and 10 feet of Richard and, and he's talking about statistics, they all make complete and total sense to you in that moment, in that space, in that time. And you feel very smart and you feel like I have got this. I am going to go apply this. I am going to change the world. And this can happen even in a bar. You can be sitting there with <laughs> a beer and, and having this conversation with a, with a friend and, and you're just, you're not even looking at Richard, but you're within the sphere. Right. Yeah. And then as soon as you move outside of the sphere, it dwindles and yeah. fades. Oof. And you're left with about 10%. There are probably different explanations for that, though, Greg. It could be that what you're being told within six feet is all wrong. And then when you get beyond that, you realize that it was all a crock. 
Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kindly yeah. disagree with that. Yeah, I, no, I, I agree. You just have such a really good understanding of it, and you explain it in such elegant ways that are easy to understand. You've spent so much of your life thinking about these problems, and your training and your experience puts you in a really unique position as a communicator of these things. So that's very much appreciated. Well, I, I think you guys are the next generation, and I'm still linear models, basically. <sighs> linear models can answer a lot of the world's problems. And even when you start getting into these more complex machine learning and deep learning algorithms, they're really good classification, but there's much more danger inherent in using them because you can find patterns in straight-up noise, and they do. And it takes somebody that has understanding of both the problem and the question and the analysis that you have to be able to separate out what is noise and what is signal. That's not always easy. That takes understanding. That takes familiarity. It takes maybe running some analytics on your test to make sure that there isn't something wonky. Linear models, well, you, you need, that's what you need, that everything else can't exist without it, you know? Right. Mahalanobis distance plays a very critical role in this study, and in our work, we use it all the time. All anthropologists at least know what this phrase is, and they might have a base understanding, or they think they have an understanding of what Mahalanobis distance is and what it's actually calculating. Could you explain what Mahalanobis distance is and how it's used, how it should be used? What does it tell you, right? Like, what is this number? I get this one number from this variance-covariance matrix. So open up the world of Mahalanobis distance for us, please, Dr. Jantz. Um, well, okay, I guess it's fairly easy. To find. But one way to think about Mahalanobis distance, one way to think about lots of multivariate techniques, you first go to the univariate example. So you have... Two means, so the stature, and females, for example. Then, Alnova's distance for stature would be the difference between the means squared divided by the variance. Or, to put it another way, multiplied by the inverse of the variance. And maybe a little history would be useful here. The whole idea of distance kind of got started uh, you know, in the early 20th century or even late 90s, there were some proposals around. But there was this thing called coefficient of racial likeness that Carl Pearson developed. And it basically solved the problem of standardizing by uh, the variance or the standard deviation, depending on how you were doing it. But it ignored correlation or covariance. And uh, the genius of Mahalanobis was figuring out how to basically decorrelate things. So uh, to extrapolate from the univariate case that I just described, um, instead of a difference between uh, univariate means, you have a difference vector for multiple means, and you multiply that by the inverse of the covariance matrix, which essentially decorrelates the measurements so that you don't have contributions of different variables that are correlated. So what do you use Mahalanobis distance for? You know, it mainly been used to examine relationships among populations. So you, you have Mahalanobis distances and you can ascertain which groups are similar and which ones are or more distance, and there are tests of significance that can be applied. And 
you know, you, you can also use it to examine distances between individuals. So we want to know how similar one individual is from another. We can use Mahalanobis distance to do that if we have a covariance matrix that, from which these two individuals were drawn. And that's basically what I did in the Amelia paper is, is examine the Mahalanobis distance of each individual in the sample from the Nakumarora bones, as well as the distance of Amelia Earhart from the Nakumarora bones. But yeah, it's it's a very versatile statistic, and uh, you know we we really don't think much about it when we use it. But it's also worth noting that when it was developed, I think in the 30s, it was computationally so burdensome that nobody ever did it with more than about 10 variables because inverting a 10 by 10 matrix is something else with mechanical calculator. But now it happens in an instant and we don't even think about the computational burden that's being performed before our very eyes. You know, my, from my perspective, and this happens to you when you get older, you, you realize how much things have changed. And I think back when you were doing this with a desk calculator, you were very clear in your purposes before you started because you were going to experiment and say, well, let's try this, well, let's try this. But now we do that. And there's something to be said for statistical experimentation. I, I agree. But I think sometimes it maybe precedes the actual act of formulating a question. The result is important, but how you get there is also important. And that's why I think this conversation is important to, to understand the theoretical underpinnings, and this paper is important to understand the theoretical underpinnings of exactly what you've done using the Mahalanova statistic and doing the individual compares all the way through to the remains and then also putting Amelia into that and, and looking at that compare. Right. When Mahalanobis distances are calculated, you get one single number, right? And then bin those numbers by whatever group classification you want. And that's how you do those other analyses. But in practice, what is that one number representing a distance from? Well, you can look at it as basically among group variances. And in fact, you know, when you array Mahalanobis distances on uh, linear axes, such as canonical variates, you basically convert the distance matrix to a variance covariance matrix and then get its, its roots and vectors. So the Mahalanobis distance is a standard measure. It's in standard units. The magnitude of the number, of course, is related not only to the differences among groups, but to the number of variables, because it is an additive thing. You add variables, you add more information, and, and Mahalanobis distance increases. And, for example, what Fortis does, it gets the Mahalanobis distance from each group's means for the person you're attempting to deal with. And that also has a specific distribution. So there, you know, it's, it has an F distribution and has a chi-square distribution. And, you know, that's the basis of the typicality. So if your Mahalanobis is 44 and 
it's still typical, you must have a lot of variables. You know, Fortis uses it in kind of an interesting way, in my opinion, with the R typicality, which calculates how Nobis distance of the unknown from the mean in every group and compares it so, to the, the individuals that are in that group so that you get a rank. And I think that's probably a, the most useful typicality uh, because you, it doesn't depend on a specific distribution, just a rank. And it can happen that our typicality is actually higher for a group into which the individual does not classify. So you may, it may classify as a white male, but it has a higher typicality for black male. And that's interesting to pay attention to when you're, when you're dealing with. Yeah, because it, that tells you something about, one, the nature of the variation that you have at your disposal and that you can use for a classification scheme. Uh, maybe uh, these just aren't powerful or discriminatory variables, and it is typical. It could be typical of every group. It just happens to be more, most typical of this group. Yeah, and, and another thing you will almost always find is that if you have a typicality in the Fordist page, where you have white males and black males, etc., and then you go over to the Howells page, the skull will be more atypical of the Howells groups because his are much more tightly constrained. So one of the more elegant points, I thought, within your manuscript was looking at typicality on these measures from the skull and, and using the type R and ranking it. Richard, could you just talk about briefly like what what the f distribution is what it means what it what that means for your interpretation of typicality in that regard and also the chi square like just briefly what are the differences the f tip converts the d square to an f ratio and as such it incorporates sample size it's basically a test of the hypothesis that this individual can come from this group based on the f ratio and you can accept that hypothesis or not. And one of the kind of annoying things that happens is that your individual is typical of all groups that you have chosen. But I don't think that's a, that's a problem of the mechanics as much as that's a problem in uh, our definition of groups or what a group is. I mean, human variation, period. Yeah. yeah we're all going to be sort of looking like each other. Sort of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is point. life's regression <laughs> towards the mean. We're all just going to look the same soon. And the chi-square is based on the chi-square distribution, not incorporate sample size. So usually, it's, almost, it's always the case that the F-tip be a little higher chi-tip. However, if the sample sizes are large, they're going to be more or less the same. In fact, with good sample sizes, it's usually the case that all three of them agree pretty well. And when the sample sizes get smaller, then your specimen may be atypical on chi-square, but not on the F ratio. Yeah, it's just, it's just three different ways of looking at, at the same thing. And each one will give you a somewhat different perspective. Yeah, and I think that's super important is you should look and think about all of them and what they each individually mean. Do you think maybe you're going to throw in maybe a comparison to a Poisson distribution? <laughs> Haven't thought about it, but I'm guessing not. <laughs> you, you mentioned she had mercury before. 
like there's mercury in the the cream that she was using? Mercury, yes. There was in Dr. Barry's freckle cream, there was a mercury compound of some sort, which was found in the bottle or in the jar uh, on the Kumarora Island. That is so wild. It, yeah. it reminds me of uh, Isaac Newton used to take mercury. And um, apparently one of the side effects of mercury poisoning is misanthropy. So he would make his classes so hard in college that kids would stop coming so he could focus on his theological works. And he became <laughs> so enraged that nobody liked those works. They just cared about the math stuff that he didn't really care about. And he was like trying to prove God's existence with numbers, but he was just going crazy on mercury poisoning. <laughs> wow. So that came up in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Uh, now with this understanding of how Nobis distance is, you make the claim in the paper that the Nukumaroro bones are at least 84 times more likely to belong to Amelia Earhart than to a random individual. So how can you make that statement uh, 84 times more likely given the evidence you had available to you? So that's a likelihood ratio based only on the bones. And I think in Bayesian terms, all this other stuff like the like the freckle cream jar, would be prior information. And you know that before you even look at the bones. And likelihood ratios can be multiplied. And if we had a likelihood ratio for Amelia's presence on the island, we could use that to develop an overall likelihood ratio. But I don't know of a good way to actually assign a number to those data. I, I wanted to throw something by you about that. So what if you just knew the population demographics that were women that would have enough money to be able to get to that island as a gross measure, <laughs> right? Because you have a total population, you know how many would be able to get there. You can establish a likelihood just based on that. And it's going to be infinitesimally small by itself. The people that have yeah. the there is going to uh. be very small. And you can just use a very blunt measure of socioeconomic status, be like, these people would have the means to even get there. No one else would, you know? Uh -huh. So I think that's a, that's a justifiable reasoning, but sorry to cut you off. It's when I was reading this, I was like, there's gotta be a way. <laughs> well, you know, the way it was explained in Stedman and Konigsberg, where they're basically pushing the idea that we should do likelihood ratios and they use, Donnie's famous case of Mr. Johnson from Iowa. And they basically say, you know, you have prior information, but if you're testifying in court, what you should do is only present the information obtained from the skeleton and that the prior information is made clear by the lawyers on both sides and the jury then provides its own prior information or prior probability to reach a verdict but it's never got a number given that there's all this euro-american stuff there much of it associated with a female and unfortunately, there's not a good inventory of what she had with her on the airplane. But another thing that the tiger found was a bone-handled, double-bladed jackknife. 
And uh, she is known to have had a similar one when she made a, a first attempt to go around the world going west. And, and she went to, to Hawaii. And then on taking off from Hawaii, she ground looped and, and the airplane had to be sent back to Oakland for repair. So on that trip, they know she had a similar knife. And this, this knife was disassembled, apparently, to make us put a blade on a spear so she could catch birds or whatever. So there's, a, there's another highly circumstantial piece of evidence that she was there. But it's still, I guess, remotely possible it's, that got there some other way. And, you know, the, you have the 1940 stuff, which we don't know that much about. And then you have material that Tiger found starting in the late 1990s, going up through the 2000s. And in the interval, there have been people on the island. The English were there. There was an American presence there. Uh, they found 22 gunshot shells and stuff like that. And archaeologically, from what I understand, there really isn't much statigraphy, so not easy to figure out what dates things come from. So you can argue that maybe that stuff got there after 1940. And I'll interject something interesting here, um, interesting to me at least, along the lines of reluctance to accept the Nukumarora hypothesis. If you go to the Smithsonian and see the Amelia thing, there's no mention of it. And the curator in charge of that basically said, that stuff could come from anywhere. <laughs> and so our nation's museum of air and space does not accept the Nukumarora hypothesis it accepts the hypothesis that she crashed into the ocean and disappeared. But it, it seems kind of ridiculous. And you had brought this up earlier too, about kind of, we need the importance of hypothesis testing. People are so easy to dismiss claims without providing any alternative hypothesis for you, or even thinking about it. Well, the Smithsonian hypothesis, or the crashed and sank hypothesis, really has no evidence to support it. There's a firm, Nauticos, I believe, been searching the ocean floor north of Howland Island, supposed to go, and they haven't found anything. And there was a very extensive search by the Navy and the Coast Guard when she didn't appear where she was supposed to, north of Howland Island. And they were convinced that, you know, it was an air and sea search, and the, the pilots were convinced that she was not there because her airplane would have floated for a while. They felt, they searched that she's not there. I was really kind of surprised at the, at the resistance to, to the idea that this could be Amelia Earhart. There's no alternative explanation that fits the known data better. And this isn't just like a deductive process. This is both inductive and deductive in that you have to use both of those kind of concepts together to arrive at your final conclusions. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I'm... I'm very happy to accept data that suggests an alternative hypothesis. So if they find her airplane at the bottom of the ocean, I'd say okay. 
So we talked a little bit about likelihood ratios. Any, do you think that that is something that we should be incorporating into practice as forensic anthropologists? Do you think it's a good idea? I, I think it's a good idea. Although, if I understand it correctly, you basically are, need two outcomes. So uh, as far as you know, putting it into four disc, which I think I've advocated to Steve, um, I think if it's a question of sex, black versus white or white versus anything. If it's a two-group situation, it's actually pretty easy to do. So, and I think that it would be maybe more useful and more understandable if, you know, you have a likelihood ratio of five in favor of males. That means it's five times more likely to be a male than a female, and that might be more meaningful than a posterior probability. At least more relatable to late. Yeah. Yeah, and I I have read uh, that that you know for for legal proceedings, anything you can uh, reduce to a likelihood ratio, you should do. But it's this is this is interesting because I'd really love to get your opinion on this, Richard. What is a good likelihood ratio? Um, well, I'll admit to a certain naivete about uh, likelihood ratios, but. I guess what one would say is that a likelihood ratio of one is not very good. <laughs> and a likelihood ratio of six million is pretty good. So somewhere in there. One of the values of the likelihood ratio is that they, that different likelihood ratios can be combined. So you might have a likelihood ratio for sex, you might have one for ancestry, you might have one for height. But as long as they're from data that aren't correlated, package it all together into one likelihood ratio. <laughs> Which is great. The multiplication rule is the Fantastic. best. Yeah. <laughs> this goes back to the idea of, you know, how we use that contextual information that surrounds a case, much like the, the Amelia case here, that you didn't use the contextual information that the way you could have, but in the conclusion you do allude to increasing the likelihood ratio if you start to think about how many people could be on that island that are that fit that profile that fit <laughs> that profile and then your likelihood ratio starts to stack up and that's like a hard thing though is that's like that's impossible to quantitatively capture but i do think that you can make some like best guesses that are still conservative to get an approximation of one because i do think it's unfair to say it's just 84 times more likely. Yeah, that's just the bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an easy take out of context thing too, right? Like I can see that as like a news outlet just being like 84 times, there's 7 billion people on the world. If it's 84 times, then we'd expect that you, there would be a couple hundred million that fit this profile or something like that. Yeah, you absolutely could. And if these bones had been found in East Tennessee, it would not be a very convincing argument. Uh, they were found on a South Sea island, uninhabited at the time. It seems like the preponderance of evidence suggests that that's the most likely case, given all of these reasons. I guess the thing you also have to acknowledge, although low, low probability as it may be, even if you have very strong evidence that she was there on the island, it still doesn't make the bones hers. And that's why it's so important that the bones do match her pretty well. Is there anything else that you think could be done with this project? Do you feel satisfied with where it's at? Has anything changed in the interim? Uh, is there anything you would have done differently knowing what you know now versus then? There's more that can be done. 
although it may be the case that I've rung about all you can ring out of the bone measurements uh, themselves. One question has been raised, and that is the measurement error that might exist, and I do not know what that error is. There could be two sources of error. One source could be Hoodless in his measurements, and the other source would be my estimations of the of the points on the photograph. And I thought one way to address that would be to have a number of observers locate those points and see how much variation there is. I have not done that, and I'm not totally convinced I should. I don't know. I think what you've done by comparing Hoodless's measurements to the photograph, I think what you've shown is that it's reasonable. Both sets of measurements are reasonable and compare well together. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the case. And you know, I don't think my measurements are going to be off a lot. But as far as what else could be done, you know, there's still this uh, stocky bodybuild hypothesis out there, and you you I think you can get some measurements of her body. So there's there's this really good photo of her facing the camera and she she has her arms down and I have tried saying, okay, I know what her humerus is or humerus is, I know what her radius is. I can use that to scale this and this and, and you know, she is a very narrow bodied, but she's also not very female bodied. She does not have wide hips, and I'm not sure you can make the argument, but you might be able to, and that is that a narrow-bodied female does not have a female-like pubis, something angle. That's something else one might investigate. But I don't know if it's, if it's worth doing that or not. And, you know, there is another interesting bit of information available on her and there was this woman i can't think of her name but she was kind of a palm reader and she published a book called lion's paws and it has the palm prints of prominent people including amelia Earhart. (laughs) and uh, you know you have a palm print and it, it's not a very good one. You cannot see the dramatoglyphic patterns. But what I've been toying with is, you, you know, about the 2D, 4D ratio and its relationship to fetal hormones. And Amelia Earhart has a very male ratio. So she was OD'd on testosterone in utero. That's the conclusion you might draw from that. And I think that that could contribute to Hoodless's evaluation of her as a male. What research do you want to see coming out in our field? What do you think we should be doing? What should we be doing differently? What do you think is missing from our research? Well, I have a pretty strong implicit bias, I suppose you could say. And I think we know quite a bit about secular change in the U.S., but I don't think we know much about it elsewhere. And so I'd like to see more of that. And we've kind of gotten some insight in Germany. So we have some modern Germans and some 19th century Germans. And But, you know, what's happening in Asia? Uh, what's happening in Africa? I don't think we know very much about that. And even in 
the U.S., there are some interesting changes that I don't think we maybe fully appreciate, and that is that the sex uh, markers that we often use, uh, like glabellar projection and mastoid size, like walker traits, those, especially glabellar projection is increasing and mastoid size is increasing. And if you use walker sex discriminants on modern Americans, it will call a lot of females males. That's because his reference data are Terry or Todd or both, I'm not sure, and an 18th century English sample, which he groups together. And that 18th century sample has very smooth globular uh, projections. So I think we need to know a lot more about the sex criteria. And Clales has shown that there's secular change in Venus traits that they look at. And Lee has told me that she sees much longer pubes in the collection than you would see in earlier people. So I think there's so much going on. And, you know, to maybe extrapolate from Boaz's original idea that America was this great place to study change using immigrants, we are conducting experiments on ourselves with the vast changes in environment that we are experiencing, and I think we need to understand them as well as we can. So that's my biased opinion about where we could go. My position is that we need to know a lot more than we do know about skeletal variation. And it's not possible to have a sample from every population that exists. Is there anything else, Richard, you'd like to talk about? Is there anything that you think people might miss in this paper or take out of context? Is there any final thoughts you have about Amelia Earhart? Do you think you found her? (laughs) Well, there is something kind of in the planning stage, and that's, that's a paper called the positive identification of Amelia Earhart, which will pull together all the the context. And there's one thing I didn't mention concerning potentially proof positive that she was there. And this is a digression and we're running late already, but in 1999, I think, Tiger found an aluminum sheet that had apparently washed up in the previous storm the year before and this sheet was just cataloged and they kind of forgot about it but then they realized that she had kind of a rough landing when she went when she landed in florida and it popped a window and they didn't have time to fix it so they put an aluminum plate in and now it it seems that that plate is what they found and it is currently being worked on by the forensic photographer, and they recently got some 16-millimeter film of her leaving New Guinea that has this plate on it, and it's going to be an attempt to make a positive identification based on the rivet holes and all of that. So if we have a positive identification that that plate is from her airplane, then... That is the most solid information that she was there that exists. I definitely think that moves it to beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. So when you consider all that 
in a package, and it's a pretty big package. I think you can say that we positively identified Amelia Earhart. Many thanks to Dr. Jantz for taking the time to chat about Amelia Earhart and especially the statistics. Also, thanks to Dr. Berg for splitting host duties for the day. You can learn more about the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGER, at T-I-G-H-A-R dot org. I'll be back in a few weeks with a series on Volume 2, Number 2, The Commingled Remains Special Issue. Be good.